Welcome to Brand Blueprints, a podcast for individuals and brands that want to harness the power of story to be more memorable and impactful. My name is Malik Yarbo, and I'm a paid media specialist, and I'm interviewing authors, storytelling experts, and builders of brands to talk about their process, the lessons they have learned, and the formulas they use to engage and have an impact on their audience. This episode will discuss the neuroscience of story with scientist Kendall Haven, who has worked with organizations such as NASA, the United States Department of Defense, the World Bank, and Boeing. He is the author of 35 books, among those Story Proof and Story Smart. He is also a distinguished visiting scholar to both Stanford University and John Hopkins University. Some of the subjects that we'll cover will be what scientists actually mean when they say story and storytelling, the most common mistakes that organizations make when they communicate, and the three bits of information that a story needs to exert influence. We will go over this and much more. Hi there, Kendall. Welcome to the show. So happy to see you. Great to be here. Awesome. Kendall, you have published 35 books. You've also served as a story consultant to departments such as NASA and the Navy, as well as worked with organizations such as the World Bank and Aramco. And you're also a distinguished visiting scholar for both Stanford University and John Hopkins University all due to your expertise in storytelling and the neuroscience of story. So please let me know, how did you stumble upon a career about storytelling and what is story actually? Uh, What is story? The heart of of the matter. Well, my, my doctorate is in oceanography, which has nothing to do with story. And so in the late 70s, I was working at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, one of the national research labs here in the United States, leading a small team doing environmental research. When I started to make up stories for a nephew who just about to turn five, so he was four going on five, and moved close enough so that we'd spend time together. And I'd go to the park and we'd play. And again, in order to get him to be quiet for a moment, to calm down, take a break, the only way I could get him to slow down was to say, let's flop in the sandbox and make up a story. I didn't think anything of it, I just did. My intent wasn't to make up a story, it was to keep one four and then five-year-old kid quiet for five minutes to you know, give him a break as his mother told me I was supposed to do. What I observed was that not only did other kids just materialize, as soon as the story started, man, they were there. And it it didn't matter to them if they were in on the beginning of it. It didn't matter to them if it was going anywhere. They were locked in. But what I started to notice was that adults did the same thing. This is back in the early 80s. So the assumption was if you're talking in a park, you're talking to the people around you, you're not on a cell phone because we didn't have cell phones back then. So 
I started to watch the adults who gathered around to listen to these stories I was making up. Most of them came in late to the story. So if it was going anywhere, they wouldn't have known it because they didn't know they missed the beginning. There was no guarantee the story was going anywhere. I was making it up as I went along. They didn't care. And it occurred to me that those adults were listening to story in a whole different way than they listened to or paid attention to anything else, including all the reports that we were paid very good money by the federal government to create. Wow. And I literally first fell in awe of and then in love with story, having no idea what in the world that word meant. But at the time, it would seem like the thing to do. I took the big leap and said, okay, I quit. Now I'm a professional storyteller, whatever that means. And was the first person in the United States to become a professional storyteller who had a background in science. Everyone else who was telling stories came out of liberal arts, performing arts. And so instantly I became the person to do research on why people listen to stories. Why do we pay attention to stories? Why do we remember information if it's giving us in story terms and in story format better than if it comes to us in any other way? And yeah, then the research and now I confirm that's true. So I started to grapple with what what does this word story really mean? Why is it different? And 35 years later in the research and having spent a lot of the last decade in EEG and fMRI labs, wiring up audiences with 24 channel EEG systems and watching their brains on story. Well, what we can now say is the reason we listen to story differently is because of the way our brains are physically hardwired. We are physically hardwired, every human being on this planet to make sense of incoming information in very specific story terms, and then to create meaning from that information in specific story terms. So while people for the last 2000 years have been trying to define what is a story, what is a story, the what really makes a story different from every other form of communication, what makes then storytelling different from every other form of delivery of communication is that when we say story, what we really mean is that specific story structure, that narrative architecture that matches the way the human brain is wired. It's not about the story that makes story different. It's about the human brain and the way it is structured, the way it processes information. That's what makes story different. So understanding the way the human brain processes information is the key to effective communication because it unlocks what are those elements that make story so powerful. So that's the short answer for for what is a story. Story is really a narrative form that matches exactly the way the human brain is hardwired to make sense of the information that it gets. Wow, so storytelling is basically inside of us, it's inside of every person, it's ongoing. Every person. It is, yeah, it is an automatic way that we, even if we don't, if you don't think you're telling a story, the human beings listening to you or reading what you wrote make sense of that information in story terms hmm. without consciously knowing that they're doing it. It's, a, it's an automatic subconscious process. And it, actually, we can now show that that process happens before the information gets to your conscious mind. 
Wow. The information that first reaches your conscious mind has already been converted into story form by some subconscious processors in, in your brain. And you don't know that you, you don't notice consciously that you've done that. So one of the big sources of miscommunication from human to human is that the person doing the communication fails to include all of those pieces of essential story information. The person hearing it then automatically subconsciously infers, implies, or creates those missing bits of story information to make sense of the incoming and make sense of what the other person is providing and thinks that what reached their conscious mind, their interpretation of it is exactly what was meant. Even though, as we now can show in the lab, in a alarmingly large number of cases, it's not what the person intended. And that's where we get all this misinterpretation of information and, and failure to accurately communicate. It's just a simple matter of not accounting for the information, the bits of information that the receiver's mind needs. Wow. That is uh, super interesting and it's very important to know. So story is the way that human beings make meaning out of the, the input Whatever, whatever inputs come in, experiential, narrative, video. Yeah, we use story terms to then make sense out of it. What am I hearing? What am I seeing? How does it make sense to me? And then to say, what does it mean to me? It all happens in very specific story terms. Wow. And would it be safe to say that it's basically that human life wouldn't be the same without storytelling or it... it what we can, I mean, if, if you like Latin, really human beings are homo narratus. Mm -hmm. That is to say storytelling animals. Take away the story and we're a different species. We're not the one that's here now. Right. Yeah. Wow. And what do you think it is that makes stories so effective when it comes to engaging, like you said, with the, with the kids and the adults, of course, I understand that it's kind of native to, to our nature, but what is it that, that makes it go so, so deep into the mind of, of, of human being? Yeah. And that's a lot of what we're trying to, to ferret out and, and research. It is those specific elements of story that really trigger human perception. If you read What's a good example? A, a quick example. Let's say you're, you're listening to a conversation and person number one says, where's John? Mm -hmm. Person number two says, well, I didn't want to say anything, but I saw a green VW parked in front of Carol's. So person one has said, where's John? Person number two says, well, I didn't want to say anything, but I saw a green VW parked in front of Carol's. If you heard that, it would probably make perfect sense to you, right? And what you'd start assuming is that you start to ask yourself, why is John over at Carol's house? At Carol's, whatever Carol's is, what's he doing over there that, and you assume that he really isn't supposed to be doing whatever it is he's doing over there at Carol's house. Even the thought that that makes sense to you is all based on your subconscious story-based automatic processing. What are you looking for? 
Who is this story about? What are they after in the story? A goal. Why is that goal important to them? Motive. Right. And and then you want to know. So you get those three basics just to understand the core, to make sense out of whatever happens. Now, in that little example I gave you, in order to do that, you made amazing leaps without consciously noticing it. For example, person number one said, where's John? Person number two answered, not by talking about John at all, but by talking about a car, a green VW. There is no connection between them until you, the receiver, assumes John goes with the green VW in order to make sense out of it. You probably, probably you automatically assume that person number one and person number two are physically co-located. Well, it doesn't say that. Hmm. Those could just be two sequential lines. You know, we know groups like the National NSA and those three letter agencies, they're monitoring worldwide communications and that could just be on their daily logs and their daily feeds. Person number one could have been in Berlin, person number two could have been in, in Taiwan. But because that doesn't make sense to you, right. you never gave your mind a chance to consider it. You assumed those two are physically co-located, so when one talks, the other one hears, and that the two of them go to the two lines go together and make sense somehow. And before it, the information ever got up to your conscious mind, you forced it to make sense. We do that all the time. What are we looking for? Characters. What are they after? Sort of physical, tangible goals, motives. Why are they after it? What are their values? What are their beliefs, their attitudes, their problems, their drivers right now? What's driving them? And then what problems and conflicts do they face that they're trying to overcome? And then what do they do to try to overcome those problems and conflicts, facing some level of risk and danger to get to the goals that are important to them? And then when, in order to make it make sense to us, in order to be able to visualize it, what we need are the detail, what we call would call details. Details are really just a, a representation of, of what your sense, various different senses would record if you were there. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? Right? That, that's the way you make sense of the world is through your senses. So details are source materials attempt to give you that same, those same cues so you can build up mental images. That's it. That's what the brain uses to make sense of incoming information. And yet it's incredible how regularly companies, corporate spokespersons, organizations fail to include all of those in the pieces that they put out. Hmm. And so let the audience, not let the audience, force the audience to make assumptions on a subconscious automatic level that the audience then, without even knowing it, attributes back to the, to the company, to the source. And that's where people start miscommunicating so that, well, in some studies that we did, over a third of the pieces put out by nonprofit organizations, and this is mostly during big fund, annual fundraising drives there, but were actually counterproductive. Wow. They, were, they would have been better just not to have mentioned anything. They did a poor job about how they solicited out the, the contributions in and, out and the kind of information they put out. In other studies on releases from corporate HR programs, 
into say from headquarters into frontline workers trying to introduce new programs and changes in benefits and changes in procedures a majority of them failed to convince a majority of those frontline workers to go along with the changes and so actually created issues and problems that then management had to go back and deal with later and you know that happens so regularly that people think it's sort of expected it only happens because those company execs fail to include those simple eight elements that I just mentioned in some of the releases. Story is natural for human beings. It's amazing to me that consciously we don't seem to understand very much what it really means and how to take advantage of it. It is, and that's incredible. So I guess it's been a tool for us to survive to understand the environment and be able to predict events, right? In our head. Exactly. Sure. Be able to take cues that are coming in and forecast them into a scenario that lets us look into, it lets us project into the future. Right. Yeah. That's what wow. we use them for, creating future visions of the way the we want the world to be or the way we think the world is headed. Wow. Okay. Well, that's brilliant. So that makes a ton of sense to me. And I feel like I know really what kind of what story is and why we uh, tell stories to, to ourselves constantly. What would you say is the biggest challenges for businesses when it comes to storytelling in an effective way? I, I kind of want to stay there because you yeah. mentioned the, the nonprofits. I thought that was super interesting. If you would uh, give an advice to a marketer or someone at a business organization, what would be the main elements that you would say that okay. this is crucial to include? Partly, it people tend to jump to the story. What's the story you want to tell? And the best advice I can give is delay as long as you can thinking about the story. The story is a vehicle that delivers the message. The question is, what's the message that you want to deliver? So where we start is who's, who's your target audience mm. and what do you know about them? And, and, and it's not just the, the, the demographics that would isolate the, the audience, but what, what, what right now, what drives them? What are the issues that are relevant to them? What's going to make what I provide relevant and important to them so that they'll really consider it? So we look at who's the audience, how am I going to make this relevant to them? How am I going to make it important to them? And then think about, all right, what is in one sentence the message that I want to get across to them? And even before that, what effect do I want my story to have on that audience? Usually what that means is some behavioral change. You want them to do something that they're not doing now or not do something they are doing now. And in order to make them do that, we want to change a belief and attitude of value. So we want to affect something in the way they look at the world that will cause them to change behavior. So we want to identify what is the belief, the attitude of value that they now have that we want to change with a story. Now we have a target that we can actually use as a metric to evaluate the success of the story. We can also use it as a metric to, to, to measure whether the story, we think the story is going to be effective before it ever gets delivered. So we don't have to wait, use the story and then say, oh, well, that didn't work. 
once we've got that information, then we can say, all right. Now, there are a couple of key, when we talk about characters, there are a couple of key character positions that the human, we've been able to, to, to validate and show in, in the lab that the human brain needs. It's going gonna, it's gonna to create these positions, character positions. And so if you are aware of it and plan for it, then you can control how the audience makes sense of and perceives your story. What are those positions? Well, who's the story about? Main character. Right. What is the embodiment of the greatest obstacle that blocks that character from reaching the stated goal for that character in the story? Which is why it's so important to have a real concrete, specific goal so we can see what's blocking them from getting there. We call that the antagonist. Those are pretty common. But a, a, even a more important question is, who do I think my target audience will identify with in this story? So before you start to think about the story, you have to think about how am I going to make the, the audience look at the story the way I want them to? This is where this neural story science really comes home to roost because those are the tools. That's where you find the tools that let you force your audience to say, I'll identify with the character they want me to identify so that I'm rooting for the outcome that the company wanted me to root for. Once you've done all that and said, now at the end of the story, do I want them to feel uplifted? Often you do. Or do I want them to feel angry? Do I want them to feel somehow that justice has not been served so that they are highly motivated to go out and do something? And often you do. So you decide, how do I want them to feel at the ending of the story and then design how the story ends so you'll create that feeling? Now, we have the characters and the information about those characters that we need to provide set up. We, we have the basic structure of the story and we know how it's going to end. That's when you're ready to start to think about the story. Think about the story before you do that. And what happens is, you start, you, you design a half-baked story where you lose control of how your target audience perceives it. So that would be my, my advice, is delay thinking about the story until you plan out how you want your target audience to understand and perceive the story and design the story, really starting from the effect on your audience you wanna have. And it's, it's a question of reverse engineering almost. You're reverse engineering the story. What do I have to say in order to get my audience to feel and act a certain way at the end? Right. So we want to start with the end in mind. Start, start with the effect in mind and then go to the end of the story and then back into what story do I have to tell to create that, that feeling at the end? That's incredible. So if you were uh, the head of a, let's say a big car company, and your Manu manufacturing or rental just so we keep thinking of the same kind of company which one do you want okay well say let's say it's uh manufacturing and it's okay. it's, a, it's a tesla okay as an example and you would have this big rollout and your target audience is new parents okay how would you position the car in the story when communicating to them? Well, let's think about what's important to a new parent. Certainly safety. Pretty quickly, they'll find out that 
a lot of room is important because every time they put the kid in the car, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with them. Right. So, and then new parents, generally speaking, would be younger. So not as economic for the large, for a large part, we'd probably have to further segment that group of new parents to say, do we want to go after just those that are already financially well-established? So secure in, in their in their finances or those that are closer to starting out. So do we want to, to look at Tesla then as something for these parents to use who have reached a certain level of economic stability, or do we want to say, look at younger parents and say, hey, 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 this is a real economic value, partly because as soon as you buy the car, uh, gas prices, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to buy gasoline anymore. You're not buying petrol. That's expensive. So that your monthly expenses will go down. And this is really a way to minimize, to, to, to maintain your monthly expenses while you're a young parent and, you know, and, and, are, and have a number of other financial time burdens. You want a car that's dependable. You want a car that's reliable. You want a car that you don't have to be running to the gas station, you know, to, and spend a lot of money to, to fix up. You also want a car that's, they'll go after safe, reliable. You have plenty of room for the, for the kid or kids. So I'd be thinking about what is important to that audience what's going to drive them to make a decision, to make a commitment, and then design the story around those factors that are the unifying factors for that little segment of the total population that I say is my target audience for this particular story. So the antagonist would be maybe mm, um, lack of money, having, yeah. It would part, partly... The, 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 there's one of the other character positions that I haven't mentioned yet. So we got, we got the, 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 the character you identify with, and we want to control that probably to make it one of two characters. Either you want them to identify with the main character of this story, or let me use an, an American example to introduce the climax character. You know, think of an old Western movie. So the, the wagon train is going across the West and they're, they're heading out to, on the Oregon Trail and it's a bunch of farmers and, you know, and, and folks that want to set up town and live in, live in Oregon. And they're not soldiers, they're not fighters. But so they hire a guide and we'll make that the hero of the story. So we'll make it John Wayne, a big Western actor, right? Mm -hmm. And he's going along because he's in love with a school marm and wants to marry her and, and set up with, with her in Oregon. That's why he's on, that's why he said, well, well, four days out of out on the trail, they're attacked by Indians. They circle up the wagons to defend themselves, but they're, they're just farmers and, you know, our flaming arrows are coming in, the wagons are on fire, people are getting hit and you think, oh, woe is us. All the, all the settlers are gonna die and, and the school marm's gonna be violated and John, uh, John Wayne, my hero's gonna die and just then, at that, at that very moment, you hear a little, you see the pendants come up over the top of the hill and here come the cavalry riding in on their horses and they save the day. And you're watching it. Now the cavalry there isn't the main character. That's not who we care about, but we recognize that they're the ones who have the power to make 
the situation come out exactly the way that they want it to. And it turns out that that position, the climax character, is the power position. Now, if I want to talk to those parents about safety, I might want to make the car the road, the answer to their safety issue, if I wanted to promote that aspect of my car. If I said to them that convenience, I probably, for this, this story, I'm going to want to make my target audience identify with the main character and make my Tesla serve the role of climax character. So whatever problem I want to put out a focus on in this story, convenience, uh, monthly monthly money, monthly dollar or monthly euro reduction because I'm not having to buy petrol, I'm not having to buy gasoline. Whatever problem I want to set up, I'll tell the story so that they'll, that, that main character will rely on Tesla, mm -hmm. in this case, to solve the problem. So they'll say, I need that character, Tesla, in order to reach my goal. The other way to set it up is to set up the target audience as the climax character. And then you got to say that you're the, you're the only one who can, who can solve the problem. That works real well for nonprofits because what you want them to do, the action you want them to take is usually to give you money to support your operations. So it's, gonna, it's a question of then saying, what action do I want that my target audience to take? How do I want to affect their beliefs, attitudes, and values so that they'll take that action? What emotion do I want them to feel at the end of this story? And then who do I want them to who do I want them to identify with in the story? What character that I want to create in the story that they're going to identify with? And how do I make them see that this power position, this climax character, is the one that I choose? to put in that position that they'll recognize as being the character position, the next character that they need in order to achieve their goals that they adopted because they identified with the identity character that I gave them. So it's looking at those elements, which although when I, you know, I say it and, and you're listening to it here, it sounds like it's a fairly complex process, actually is the most natural and automatic thing because it's exactly what every human brain does every time they're trying to process some new information. So it's just mimicking what is gonna happen inside, automatically it's gonna happen inside the brain of every person in your target audience. Yeah, and I think that was super valuable. And that's why it's very important to be clear about who is the climax character and who is the ah. actual protagonist. Like you said, like, there's such a difference in feeling and emotion there when you say, you know, you're the hero, you're the one that can make a change to this. You're, now that starts to motivate or, or, you. Or saying if you want what if you want what it is that you were trying to say you want, the only way to get it is by having a Tesla or by using whatever it is that is the product that we're trying to sell. The problem that companies run into so regularly is when they try to, especially this works on internal communications. You know, when you've got a change in policy, a change in plan, you gotta, you're putting out something for the frontline workers in a, in a company. Mm. So often the company tries to make themselves 
or the CEO makes him or herself be the main character of the story, that is just asking for your target audience to flip the story so that in their minds, you and the company, company CEOs, the company execs, the C-suite level folks, aren't the main character. They'll put themselves in the role of main character and put you and flip you to the role of antagonist. And suddenly in this story that you thought you were telling to, to make, to promote some new policy, everyone is against it just because of the way you told the story and, 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 and set it up telling about yourself or the company is the main character instead of thinking, who's my target audience and how do I want them to look at the story? So it, I often get brought in to work with companies because either for internal or external target audiences, they cranked out a story that got flipped on them and, they're, and they now have a disaster because their target audience is now looking at the story exactly the opposite way that they were supposed to and is now turned against the company and they need to now find a way to create some, some counter story to try to correct the situation would have been a lot easier to have stopped and thought about story science and the story structure ahead of time and avoided the disaster in the first place. That's a great point because here in Sweden, we right now have a campaign where the government is basically pushing out this message that you should wash your hands for someone mm. that you love. So they're saying that you should wash your hands uh, for someone good. you love. Yeah. So that's putting you in the role of climax character mm -hmm. and making you feel incredibly guilty mm -hmm. if someone gets sick because they, if they get sick, it's because you were selfish and didn't wash your hands enough. So yeah, that's, that, that's good. It's putting you in the, uh, in the role of climax character, also in the role of main character. And you can, you can set it up so that the same story character has more than one of these character positions. You can have the main character also be the climax character. And so yeah, that, that's a good example of trying to set up not the government in this case, mm -hmm. but you, the individual, as the climax character, as having not only the power to protect the people you love, but the responsibility to do it. So yeah, that's that's a little story science in operation right there. Yeah. And and when it comes to persuasion and influence, did you notice anything in your research that makes influence um, or persuasion um, and actual behavior change more likely? Yeah, actually, uh, that was one of the big questions we got from a number of US government agencies to research. What, how, how do stories exert influence? What, what really does it? And we are to the point now where I can actually quantify the influence potential of a story for a given target audience. We can calculate it ahead of time and also identify those aspects of the story that would be, would have the greatest increase in influence potential. If you were to uh, attack and alter those, those little elements, it's really using that, it, it hinges ultimately on three simple concepts. And what's amazing is, Every human being 
every time we take a human being into the lab and, and test them, every human being makes these calculations automatically without consciously thinking about it and does it very accurately and precisely without knowing how they did it. They just do it. So it took a, a good bit of work to parse out exactly how people go about making those these decisions on these three bits of information. One is what we call the residual resolution emotion. At the resolution of the story, what emotion are you left feeling? Okay. And then there are four or five factors that we now can identify that go into that, that are under the control of say the company that's putting out a story. The next one is how do you feel about the main character of the story? And what makes that complicated isn't identifying the main character, but it's whether or not the target audience identifies with that character or with some other character in the story. If they identify with some other character, the way they feel about the main character goes way down the tubes because they don't care much about the main character. They care about the character that they identify with. So in order to make them care about that character and have a score on that character that could create some influence with this story, it's all about controlling the identity character. The other one is then how do you feel about the antagonist? That the embodiment of the greatest obstacle that's blocking the character from achieving their goal. The more negatively you feel about that antagonist, the more unfair you feel. And the antagonist doesn't have to be another story character. It can be a force, poverty, prejudice, the coronavirus. Okay, the more the more negatively we feel toward that, the more negatively the story makes us feel toward that character. The more positively the story is set up to make us feel about the main character, and the stronger the emotion the story makes us feel at the, at the resolution point of the story, the greater the influence potential. And so while those elements I, I identified in 2014 during some research work, it took five or six years after that to start to identify what are all the little individual factors that the human brain uses to, to make to come to those three composite scores in our brains, even though consciously you don't notice that you score it, but yet we do, we just don't think of the score in number terms, but it comes out in the vocabulary that we use to describe the story and the impact it's had and the characters, the way we feel about the characters. So yeah, those are all things now that we can quantify and, and therefore calculate ahead of time to make sure that the story is going to actually do what a company would want it to do. Wow. Okay. So the more emotions that we engage in our audience, yeah, the more likely and they are to be engaged and also persuaded or in the right way, of course. And that's a, that's an interesting, but a good point to, to bring back up. If an audience isn't engaged by the story, they're not really engaged by it. They will not be influenced by the story. And we could establish that in the lab. But engagement itself, we were able to show, can be defined as emotionally laden attention. Attention being focused mental activity over time. So you're, but intellectually, 
you will never be engaged fully just intellectually. You can't provide information and expect people to be fully engaged unless accompanying that they're emotionally involved. Somehow it has to feel personal. It has to feel relevant to each person enough so that it engages them at an emotional level. So it, if you try to, to stay very intellectual and provide information only, you can be a, somewhat appreciated, but you're not going to change anyone's mind and you're not going to change their behavior, their, their basic attitudes, unless you make it somehow visceral and engage them emotionally. The stronger those emotions that you engage, the more influence potential you exert. And then the question is, you know, like if people get too emotional, suddenly it's like a cattle stampede and, and, and you're desperately just trying to control it. You don't want to start, usually, usually don't want to start a riot unless you're a terrorist organization. But for the rest of us, you, you want to change behavior, but not have people go out on the street and start throwing Molotov cocktails and, and bricks up and down the street. So you want to control those create those emotions, but also control them to achieve the end result that you're actually trying to create. Wow. So yeah, just making sure that uh, we're engaging our audience's emotion and controlling for, for those factors. And that it's, how do you say, it's aligns with the values of our, our audience, right? So they feel right. like this is something that is affecting me. Um, important and relevant to them so that they see the, how it really impacts them as individuals. Yeah. Stories are all about the target audience. They're not about the teller of the story. It's all, it has to be set up to be about, I mean, told from the viewpoint of and created from the viewpoint of the target audience, not from the, the company or the organization that's creating the story. Right. And do you have an example when a company has done the opposite of that and it's gone really bad? Yeah, I'll give you. There, unfortunately, there, there are a lot of them. One that just was fairly recent, Frito-Lay. You know, they make chips, corn chips and potato chips and blah, 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 blah snack foods. They put out a story. They wanted to put out a story about change. What they wanted to say was, change happens a lot and it's always a bit of a struggle but we push through so bear with us they put it out at a time what they did was go on an interview interview people in the manufacturing lines on a they're in this noisy big factory where there are 200 machines that are each pumping out potato chips and then they went to the the drivers who drive them, who are in the trucks, who drive the bags of chips around and, and then go into the little convenience stores and actually stick their bags on the shelf. And they talked to those people on the sales floor, all these people, and, and interviewed them about change and put it together and put out this five minute video that was about supposed to say, supposed to say, yeah, changes happens and it's always a struggle, but, but we get through. And to do that, what they kept having, they took the clips out from people all over talking about how much of a struggle change was and how hard it was, then showed it. But at the end, they always say, you know, well, we grew through and I'm still here. Showed it to people. And the result was 
that the general consensus was, oh, what they're trying to tell me is that there's some big changes coming and I better get out of here before they do. And they suddenly had mass resignations. So that frontline workers, salesmen, drivers, dock workers who were, you know, driving forklifts around loading up big semis, mostly they just wanted to bail ship before it sank. It totally backfired and made people afraid of change. What they missed is that change stories are not about change. A change story that a company puts out is never, if it's effective, it's never about change. It's about preservation. The question is not, what are we going to change? It's, what are we going to change so that we preserve the things that are most important to us? That's looking at story from the audience's point of view and reframing it so you're telling it from their point of view, not from your own. Yeah, you're going to change a policy. You're going to change something. But that's not what's important to the people. What's important to the people is what do they preserve? So I went back and looked at the raw footage. I mean, actually, it's on computer. It's not like the old days when they had film and it was it cut it out and it was sitting on the floor of the of the editing room. But and and was blown away by these same people talking about how much they loved working for Frito Lay and how much they valued especially the relationships that they had with people that they were around so that they looked forward to going to work every day because of the people that were there and how, how much they got out of being at work with these people. So as soon as we redid that video and stopped talking about change and started talking about what was important to the people who were there, and then the, what the Frito-Lay put in was, we, Frito-Lay, are committed to changing those things that we absolutely have to change because changes in competition, changes in the marketplace, in order to preserve the things that are most important to you. They completely reversed the reaction that they got. And it wound up being something that was a big source of pride uh, and affirmation for the people who are the frontline workers in the company, just because we'd stopped and shifted the story from looking at the company's point of view to looking at it from the worker's point of view. And so reframed the story to, to make it so that they would identify where we wanted them to identify and, and feel that preservation that the company had their backs in preserving the things that were important to them so that it made them willing to go to stay with and work with the company to change the things they had to change. It's, it's those kinds of stories and, and they happen all the time. That's a fantastic lesson. So is that very closely related to motive and is that something that we as humans mm. always kind of look for and try to detect? Motive is the biggie. It's right. so underrated. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Motive, uh, now what motive is, a goal in order to be effective needs to be something that's real and tangible. Happiness, peace, company success, those are the lousy goals. Because ah, they're too vague. We're not quite sure what they look like. So that it, during a story, we never really know if the character is getting there or not. So a goal needs to be far more specific and tangible. But then what lies behind that goal are the motives 
Motives being the values, beliefs, attitudes, problems, individual wants, things. Some of those are permanent. Some of those are very changeable. And so they're transient. What we find when we research it is that audience members will identify most readily with the character in the story whose motives, values, beliefs, attitudes, drivers, problems, gripes, seem to match most closely with their own. It's called motive matching. So if you, it is the primary tool for inducing your target audience to identify with the character in the story that you want them to identify with. And yet it is so common for companies, especially organizations in general, but profit and nonprofit companies to not mention their driving motives. And so leave them up to the, to be assumed by or inferred by their target audiences. And what we find is that when you leave an audience to infer motives, they instinctively infer motives that are more negative, more self-serving, even more cruel and, and, and vicious than are the actual real motives of the, 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 the person, the character. The story, be it the company, be it a spokesperson for the company, CEO. And so often then turn on the character because they're, what they're really turning on are those assumed motives that, that they inferred on their own because the actual motives weren't included in the story. And people say, well, wh wh why did they turn on me? What did, I, what did I do? Well, what you did was not tell them your actual motives and left it for your target audience to infer those motives. And audiences, for some reason, instinctively infer far more negative motives than are the actual ones. Wow. And isn't that probably something that we've all done that maybe our boss has told us or they, you know, we get communication from the company. They tell us, oh, we have this new system. And, you know, in our head, we have some, they, they're, this is probably sure. their motive. They're probably trying yeah. to X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, and it can go down to something as simple as someone says, "Oh, uh, there's a meeting. This meeting this afternoon. You don't have to come to that one." Why did he did not want me to come? What are they going to do at that meeting that they want me out of there? And you instantly start to think about, in a negative way, the the motives that person had for saying you don't have to come. When in fact, it might be they were trying to do you a favor and say, you know, uh, we're not going to cover anything worthwhile, and you'd be better off actually working. For it, but our instinct is to go to the negative motives. And so it's one of the things I, when I work with companies, I've worked with them a lot to say, okay, what let, let's talk about it. What are the what are the drivers, the motives that lie behind a program, that lie behind a new communication, that lie behind what you're trying to do, and why will your target audience care? Wow. And that's a great, great les lesson and something to keep in mind uh, that if you leave information out people will start to infer pretty negative always. things. Always. So it's very important to be clear about your motives as well and really put emphasis to that. But that's the thing though. Did you notice in research that if you would put emphasis on your actual motive, 
but your target had already started, you know, inferring negative thoughts or their own story. Did you notice that it's hard to turn someone around? Usually, yes, it is, but it's not impossible to do. And usually what it requires is for you to acknowledge those negative assumed motives and inferences. You probably think that blah, 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 blah. I bet a lot of you have been thinking that blah, 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 whatever it is. Once you acknowledge that, then you're in a position to say, to counter it. Until you acknowledge it, and, and bring it up on the table, it's very difficult to challenge it. When in a story, once people start to make assumptions, it's incredibly difficult to change it within that same story. So once people get off track by inferring some negative information, incorrectly inferring information within a story, in that same story, you're not going to change their minds. They're lost, which is why you need to be very careful not only about making sure that the information is in there, but by controlling when that information comes into the story so that you don't give people a chance to get way off track. So often people leave all the good stuff for the end, you know, hit them with your conclusions at the end. And long before people ever get to the conclusions, they've gotten such a negative and impression of the story that they're tuned out and gone and they never really hear those good parts so you know the the saying there's a saying you only get one chance to make a good first impression it's especially true with stories you need you only get that opening that that one opening to establish engagement to start to create their expectations for where the story is going their sense of where they'd like the story to go, their sense of who the story is really going to be about for them and who they should care about in the story. These are all things that, that audiences need to establish in their own mental imagery of the story very quickly. And if they get that information from you, they'll accept it. If they don't, they'll infer it on their own. And then you've lost control of your own story and the way that your target audience is making sense out of it. That's a fantastic point, and that we have to make sure that we're maintaining control of the story and that we want to yeah. share with our audience. That's a huge point, and I'll definitely take that with me. Okay, so how about someone that is interested in story science, whether it's someone that's working inside of a company or for a governmental agency or a nonprofit, what would be some of the ways that they could you know, practice this or, or, or know more about it? Well, well, of course, right now, three good ways. One would be, the first two would be the, the books that I've written on that specific topic. And there, there aren't many people who have been writing on neural story science just because there are only a couple of us in the, in the world who have really been in positions to work on it. So the book Story Proof yep. and then Story Smart, th- those two books, I'm in a position now where the next one which is the real quantitative assessment work. How do you actually calculate the influence potential of a story? That's the next book that I'm about ready to put out, but it's not out yet. And so they can always get to me at kendallhaven.com or if you want to email, it's kendall 
at kendallhaven.com. Real simple, real easy. And certainly I can turn them on to whatever sources they might want and, and answer specific questions that they might have. Excellent. And just for my last question, I just have a question here for, for, for the people. How do you make a career out of, out of your passion and, and, and being basically one of the first in a brand new field? Yeah. When I'm working with people, beginning storytellers and, and doing classes for people who want to be full-time storytellers, then they often say, you know, oh yeah, wow, I want to, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to tell stories. There's a difference between a vocation and an avocation. Once it becomes your vocation, then you're depending on it to pay the bills. When it's your avocation, you're depending on it to feed your heart and soul. Those two don't automatically go together. And often people who turn their avocation into a vocation find that it no longer functions as an avocation. And they have that great hole that's left in them that was all about passion and joy and delight. And now it's scrubbing out enough income to pay the bills. So I would say, don't think in, in career terms. Think first about how to do the thing you love to, to fill up your heart and soul. And if you get to a point where you say, I'm sorry, but I can't do anything else. My mind tells me this is what I got to do. Then, then think about turning it into a vocation. But when you do, the big question to ask is, how do I keep my energy and my passion going while I'm also trying to make it into a regular career? Fantastic. I love that. Yeah, that's great advice. I thought it was amazing interview and thank you so much for your time. Uh, please try to my pleasure. check out Kendall's books, Stories Smart and, and Stories Proof. And uh, you can also check him out at kendallhaven.com uh, to check all of his experience out. And I, and I highly advise you to do so. Thank you so much, Kendall, and hope you have a great evening and hope to talk to you soon again. Uh, great. Thank you. I hope so. Look forward to it. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Brand Blueprints podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to leave us an honest review. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to catch our next episode.